0: chapter sixteen part one of twenty years of the republic eighteen eighty five to nineteen hundred five by harry thurston peck this librivox recording is in the public domain the transformed republic part one in the twenty years which followed the first inauguration of president cleveland the philosophic observer finds a multiplicity of tendencies and of achieved results among the maze of which it is often difficult to disentangle those that possess supreme significance no period in the whole history of the republic had been so fraught with the consummation of changes long impending it was a period of precipitation in it a score of influences which for many years had been almost imperceptibly at work now with a rapid rush wrought out results so swiftly and so surely as to days the purblind and confound the calculations of conservative students of political and social history the central fact which dominates these twenty years of evolution is the fact that in them the united states at last attained a genuine national unity whatever orators and political theorists may have said and written during the preceding century no dispassionate analyst of american conditions could blink the truth that the federal republic throughout that century had been not one nation but several nations held together so to speak mechanically rather than blended chemically in a complete identity of sentiment and interest the fact might well seem odd to those who took a purely superficial view and constructed a theoretical argument here was a people mainly of english stock occupying a continuous territory speaking the same language and possessing the same racial governmental and social traditions in the war of independence the colonies had resisted a common enemy in defence of a common principle and had won a victory of which the glory was a common heritage they had voluntarily accepted the rule of a central government in which the rights of each constituent part were carefully safeguarded in all this there was to be detected the presence of influences making for a more perfect unification how came it then that actual unity was not attained until more than a century had elapsed what was the cause which kept the centrifugal and the centripetal forces so nearly balanced as to make it often doubtful which would finally prevail the anomaly was the more interesting because from the very outset the drift toward a true nationalization of the republic had been clearly indicated although the revolution itself was succeeded by an ebbing of national energy this merely evidenced the lassitude of a reaction it was swiftly followed by a vigorous impulse which came from the south and from the west and which was personified in the two great leaders calhoun and clay while federalist new england was sulking in sterile criticism or impotently muttering treason these two ardent souls were urging a boldly aggressive policy the adoption of which would inevitably bind the states together they spurned the timid temporizing of their elders and flung the gauntlet of defiance in the face of britain calhoun's early statesmanship urged the construction of great permanent roads for defence connecting more closely the interests of various sections of this great country clay personified the spirit of the west its impatience of traditional restraints its thirst for expansion even at the cost of conquest and its conviction that the government at washington should give the vivifying impulse which the individual states withheld in the early years of the nineteenth century it really seemed as though the barriers between one section and another were soon to be demolished canals were cut and other waterways were opened steamboats began to ply between the growing cities great roads were built across the mountains meanwhile the constructive jurist chief justice marshall a native of virginia was strengthening the authority of the central government by holding the supreme court to his broad views of constitutional interpretation it appeared at that time as though within a few decades facility of intercourse commercial interests and a growing pride in material and moral progress would link the states so closely and so surely as to give the natural ties of race and language their full effect it was of course the blight of slavery which deferred this consummation not because of any moral taint associated with that institution but because of the economic clash which it made inevitable it not merely kept the south a purely agricultural community without the varied industries which flourished in the north but it erected the breeding of slaves into a highly profitable occupation note one page seven nineteen this special interest caused in the south a reaction against the centralizing unifying tendency which had earlier been noticeable it paralyzed the large patriotism of calhoun and his able followers and forced them into a narrow particularism and the exaltation of the state above the nation their political genius was thenceforth devoted to the undoing of what they had before accomplished and to the stifling of a sentiment which was beginning to prevail for many years thereafter the narrowness of the new england abolitionist was matched by the narrowness of the southern slave owner and the bitter strife between the two set back the birth of a true nationalism for three-quarters of a century the period of the civil war when the vigorous west threw its sword into the scale and determined the issue of the contest settled the question of slavery forever yet the united states could not at once become a real political entity the bitterness of the war itself would soon have passed away but the horrors of reconstruction sank deeper into the soul of the south than even the memory of devastated lands and of cities laid in ashes it is painful now to dwell upon the folly and fanaticism which made that period the darkest in all american history the wise and conciliatory plans of lincoln were forgotten by the northern radicals to disenfranchise the best and ablest citizens of the south was bad enough the incredible scheme of granting immediate suffrage to the half brutish blacks and of thrusting them into the supreme control of civilized communities was the high-water mark of political insanity unprincipled white men from other sections of the country flocked into the southern states and exploited the ignorance of the negroes there was seen the spectacle of governors of states carrying with them to low orgies bundles of state bonds of which they filled in the amounts according as they needed the money for debauchery legislative halls which had been honoured by the presence of learned jurists and distinguished lawyers were filled with a rabble of plantation hands who yelled and jabbered like so many apes while drunken wenches sprawled upon the dais before the speaker's rostrum public debts of every sort were piled up mountain high and whole communities already impoverished by war were crushed under new and even more appalling burdens note two page seven twenty one but the reconstruction period and negro domination passed away after the inauguration of president hayes in eighteen seventy seven slowly but surely the south began to get upon its feet once more yet so long as it was excluded from any leading share in the federal government a sentiment of nationality could not in the nature of things be fostered in the southern states so long as northern orators and statesmen filled their speeches with allusions to rebel brigadiers and pointed to the solid south as a menace to the nation's welfare for just so long the south responded by a show of sullen anger and defiance in a word so long as the democratic party was kept out of power for the sole reason that one wing of it was composed of southern voters the republic still remained fundamentally divided it was this fact which gave to the election of mr cleveland in eighteen eighty four so profound a significance Whatever one may think of his two administrations, they certainly demonstrated not merely that the bugbear of the solid South was nothing but a bugbear, but also that the nation could ill afford to reject the services of the able men whom the South bred up, and of whom Lamar and Herbert and Carlyle and Francis were conspicuous examples. Political recognition in the executive departments of the government did much to soften the harshness of Southern feeling. Meanwhile, the South was recovering with astonishing celerity the material wealth which it had lost. Manufacturers were established very successfully at many points, and notably in Georgia and Alabama. Mines began to be worked. Capital was attracted from the North and from Europe. Between 1895 and 1905, the economic development of the Southern states was one of the most remarkable in the whole history of the modern industrial world. Note 3, page 722 the distribution of wealth the new activities and the wider outlook which resulted from them meant more than a shifting of the industrial centre of gravity at the south it meant a transformation in the political relations of the south with reference to the nation as a whole as one expressed it at the time the southern people were too busily engaged in providing for a prosperous future to waste valuable time in brooding over a melancholy past hence after eighteen ninety we find a new south hopeful vigorous and alert forming each year new ties to hold it fast as an integral part of the great republic whose foundations had been laid by the genius and patriotism of southern men the one thing necessary to make this clearly evident was the impulse given by the war with spain it was then that the south itself learned how far it had emerged from its old seclusion its volunteers flocked with enthusiasm to the recruiting offices and they fought shoulder to shoulder with their fellow-countrymen of the north and west for the same flag and the same country it was a superb instance of political tact when president mckinley gave commissions in the army to fitzhugh lee and joseph wheeler two ex-confederate commanders this single act intensified the warmth of patriotic feeling which the south displayed throughout that war and afterwards President Roosevelt, himself of Southern ancestry on his mother's side, succeeded in increasing this good feeling in spite of the temporary excitement aroused by the Booker-Washington affair. Some of his utterances appealed directly to Southern sentiment. Note 4, page 723. His secretary of war, Mr. Elihu Root, in an address delivered before the Union League Club in New York City, frankly confessed that the republican party had been guilty of a grave error after the civil war in bestowing the unrestricted franchise upon the negroes these things and others like them made mr roosevelt so popular in the southern states that at the time of the election of nineteen hundred four an eminent southern democrat answering a question put to him in private conversation said in the south we are going to vote for parker but we are all praying hard for roosevelt as a matter of fact this election actually broke the ranks of the long solid south for the states of west virginia and missouri then cast their electoral votes for a republican president with the consummation of true national unity it came about that the political and social phenomena which the united states exhibited after eighteen ninety five were no longer sectional the problems which they involved confronted the people of the entire country these phenomena and these problems when analyzed philosophically related first to the astonishing growth of material prosperity and the distribution of wealth and second and partly consequent upon the first to a strong and rapid drift towards something like state socialism all the other important questions that arose during the period under consideration will be found to have sprung from one or the other of these two causes sufficient has been already said in the course of this narrative concerning the exploitation of the country's natural resources and the diffusion of wealth the economic history of the united states had on the whole been the history of material success broken only now and then by financial crises which at times retarded but could not long prevent the accelerated enrichment of the nation from eighteen forty six to eighteen sixty industrial activity of every sort was very marked the civil war for a moment brought panic and financial depression but it soon proved a stimulus not merely to speculation but to legitimate enterprise as well from that time the record varied until at the beginning of the mckinley administration the country reached a pitch of material well-being such as had never before been known it was not however so much the growth of wealth as the manner of its distribution which now became significant not the riches of the nation but the riches of individuals until eighteen sixty to sixty five the national wealth had been widely diffused after eighteen sixty five it began to be gathered into great fortunes the first and for a long while the only american millionaire had been george washington who achieved wealth by the judicious purchase of western lands for many years after his time there were in the words of mr james bryce no great fortunes in america few large fortunes and no poverty the same careful observer contrasted this condition with that which prevailed about eighteen ninety he then wrote now there is some poverty many large fortunes and a greater number of gigantic fortunes than in any other country of the world note five page seven twenty five the much lauded era of consolidation exhibited the truth of this assertion and revealed a growing tendency to increase still more the concentration of wealth in the hands of a comparatively few no statement on this subject professing to be exact can be accepted literally yet the results of some careful investigations represent at least an approximate truth thus it was computed in eighteen ninety six that one-eighth of the families in the united states possessed at least seven-eighths of all the country's wealth note six page seven twenty five the assertion was also made in nineteen hundred three that the twenty-four men who then composed the directorate of the united states steel corporation controlled at least one twelfth of the total wealth of the united states a new york lawyer one of j gould's counsel mr thomas g sherman had said eleven years earlier that the united states was practically owned by less than two hundred fifty thousand persons and that within thirty years from that time it would be controlled by fewer than fifty thousand persons note seven page seven twenty five merely as an interesting fact therefore it would be worth recording that the rapidity with which wealth had grown was balanced by the startling inequality of its distribution to a very large extent this inequality represented a natural inequality in the brain power which exists among individuals it was a tribute in part to efficiency of organization and to that superior ability which in the world of finance is comparable to a like ability in the sphere of military affairs the military analogy is indeed a very apt one translate the strategic maxims of napoleon into the language of finance and there is formulated a system quite as axiomatic as was his because it expresses fundamental truths napoleon's battles were won by a tenacious adherence to a few simple principles always have your forces so distributed said the emperor as to make it possible for you to direct all of them at once upon the weak point in the enemy's position this implies singleness of command Clearness of design and concentration of power. When, therefore, immensity of force is directed by supreme ability centered in one dominant mind, there is effected a combination which is practically irresistible. And the same thing is true with regard to money. When millions are united and massed, and when their concentrated power is wielded by one far seeing brain, they will draw to themselves swiftly and surely other millions, and will justify the proverb which declares that wealth breeds wealth an anecdote current in nineteen hundred two elucidates one of the causes of american success in financial management not long ago the head of an american corporation walked into the london offices of a great concern which represented similar interests in england the american came unknown and unannounced after waiting for half an hour in an ante-room he was admitted to the presence of the manager and came at once to business with an unconcern of manner in striking contrast to english ways Now, see here, he began without any preliminary talk. I've looked into your concern and know all about it and just what it's worth, and I've come here to buy you out. The Englishman gasped and stared at what appeared to him the extreme assurance and even insolence of his visitor. Yes, continued the American, swinging his leg easily over the arm of the chair, I know all about your business. It isn't worth a million pounds, but I'm prepared to offer you that if you'll close the thing right here and uh, when would you be ready to pay over the million pounds asked the englishman with what he regarded as elaborate irony the american looked at his watch well he said it's rather late to-day but if you'll have the papers drawn i'll turn the million over to you to-morrow afternoon note date, page seven twenty seven when men by temper and training come to possess the ability to do large things in this direct and simple way they have an immense advantage over those who can act only in committees or boards or companies and they will inevitably dominate them and use them quite at will hence it was that the concentration of wealth in the united states between eighteen eighty five and nineteen hundred five being directed in a swift effective and overwhelming fashion seemed to promise the commercial and financial conquest of the world it was this which dazzled for a while the imagination of the american people they had begun to make other nations pay tribute to the republic they confidently looked forward to a time when as a certain senator somewhat extravagantly phrased it both the atlantic and the pacific oceans would commercially become american lakes traversed by american fleets and washing no shores that were not tributary to the united states in many respects the possession of great fortunes by individuals was a direct advantage to the nation as a whole the new millionaires differed greatly from their predecessors of the period immediately following the civil war that war had created the american millionaire from eighteen sixty five to eighteen seventy five the most striking figure in american life was that of the nouveau riche he was to instructed minds a most pathetic sight so grossly conscious of his wealth so anxious to spend it in an impressive way to do something princely something really big while still so hopelessly ignorant of how to do it he purchased urban dwellings with brown stone fronts and plate-glass windows he procured horses and carriages and stocked his cellars with champagne in the country he built for himself enormous wooden mansions in many colours surmounted by wooden cupolas and towers and battlements and adorned with a maze of wooden pillars representing what someone cleverly styled the jigsaw renaissance while his lawn was dotted with cast-iron statuary painted to resemble bronze many of these war-made millionaires ultimately lost their money as quickly as they made it some of them left it to be squandered by their sons the wealth of those days was seldom perpetuated and this fact was crystallized in a popular proverb to the effect that there are only three generations from shirt-sleeves to shirt-sleeves the representatives of the still newer wealth bore slight resemblance to the shoddy millionaire they lived in the age that had discovered europe where they had traveled and observed and learned for at this time europe became a mighty educator of the american people it led them to the appreciation and encouragement of art and architecture and landscape gardening and to a knowledge of the true refinements of civilized existence there began to be laid in the united states the basis for something which resembled an aristocracy founded in the first instance upon wealth but in its higher forms deserving a better name than that of mere plutocracy an aristocracy must always ultimately rest upon either power or service and more often upon a combination of these two in bygone centuries power in its last analysis meant physical force and hence the founders of the older aristocracies of europe had been warriors often soldiers of fortune who by the edge of the sword carved out for themselves a permanent place in the kingdoms of the old world in the nineteenth century the greatest source of power was wealth and therefore upon it and upon that service to the people which it was enabled to perform a new aristocracy rapidly arose in the united states it was easy to sneer at the source as being vulgar yet power when it is so great as this is never vulgar even though the wielders of it are in the united states at the beginning of the twentieth century only the early stages of this evolution could be seen its frequent crudities and inanities every one could detect and mock at for there had so far been reached only the period of imitation and display yet already the possession of great wealth had exercised a sobering influence and had begun to create a sense of civic responsibility in many of its possessors foreign observers had been wont to say that in america public office was held only by the representatives of the ignorant and that men of light and leading held themselves aloof from politics this criticism lost its point in the years from eighteen ninety to nineteen hundred five more and more did it become usual for young men of cultivation and intelligence to enter public life at the time of the spanish war such men were eager to receive commissions in the army or failing that to fight even in the ranks the nobility of service was beginning to be understood president roosevelt himself was an admirable example of this new tendency to sacrifice the delights of cultivated ease to the welfare of the nation the indirect value to the country at large of the concentration of wealth was also undeniable many of the latter-day millionaires in fact an ever-increasing number of them even in the pursuit of their own pleasures and the gratification of their own tastes conferred a benefit upon the entire people following sometimes unintelligently but as time went on with a truer comprehension the english models they set a fashion that in many things was admirable the open-air life the love of country homes and the practice of outdoor amusements of riding and hunting and of healthful sports all tended to improve the physical and moral tone of americans the great estates of the wealthy the splendid country houses on long island in the berkshires in maine and in other picturesque localities the country clubs the golf links no less than the sumptuous hospitality offered by the rich to their friends all set a standard of living which little by little added to the refinement of american life and did much to smooth away the crudities which had marked an earlier stage of american civilization still more important was the generosity which gave with lavish hand to educational endowments and to create and maintain libraries picture galleries and museums american purchasers brought to their native land masterpieces of art from the choicest collections of europe and they patronized often with great discrimination the artists and architects of their own country in this sphere the new wealth and the growth of an aristocracy primarily founded upon wealth were beginning to make the cities of the united states what the great merchant princes of northern italy had made their cities at the time of the renaissance there were many who deplored the inevitable growth of social distinctions which resulted from the state of things that had just been described yet these critics ignored the fact that social distinctions had always existed in the republic and that they sprang not from external circumstances but from the inborn social habits of the race that the multimillionaire should think of himself as in a class apart from the man of moderate means was no more absurd than the fact that the great merchant should look down upon the petty tradesman that the clerk should feel himself to be above the mechanic or that the shop-girl should exclude from her society the domestic servant the anglo-saxon cherishes an intolerance of social equality as intense and as ineradicable as his championship of equality before the law that the rapid growth of wealth and its unequal distribution were known in many cases to be the result of inequality before the law explains the discontent which throve among the american people during the years with which this narrative has to do americans are singularly free from envy that some men should grow rich while others remained poor was not in itself a cause of dissatisfaction great fortunes honestly acquired were rightly held to be an honor to their possessors because they were the concrete evidence of ability economy and perseverance but on the other hand the fortunes that had been gained through illicit favor in defiance of the law and by the debauchery of those who had been chosen to make and to administer the law there roused a widespread and steadily deepening resentment note nine page seven thirty two conspicuous instances of this lawless wealth have already in these pages been sufficiently pointed out in discussing the growth of trusts and the discrimination by railways in the making of their rates and in the stifling of competition by other means in flagrant violation of both the statutes and the common law of the land for twenty years the course had been practically impotent to check and to destroy the power of monopoly americans began to feel that the orderly processes of the law were unavailing petty criminals underlings and agents were sometimes punished yet no great criminal of the wealthy class had ever been sent to prison but was at most permitted to escape on the payment of a fine which was to him of no more consequence than the copper coin which one tosses to an urchin in the streets state after state adopted legislation intended to be remedial or punitive yet this practically accomplished nothing and some of these very states notably new jersey most inconsistently framed their corporation laws in such a way as actually to encourage the increase of oppressive combinations the feeling of helpless rage which spread through the west in eighteen ninety two had permeated the entire country in nineteen hundred five and had prepared the minds of the people for measures far more drastic than any which had hitherto been known in the republic It is thus that one may account for the rapid development of state socialism in the United States. The germs of this movement were perhaps sown by the German immigrants who came to America at the time of the political disorders of 1848, and who were imbued with the doctrines of Karl Marx. For a long while, the organizations which these men formed remained apart from the current of American political life the name socialist was little understood by the people at large and was vaguely held to be synonymous with communist and anarchist in time however the social unrest which was aroused by the growing inequality of conditions began to stir the native section of the people the various labor organizations which have elsewhere been mentioned note ten, page seven thirty-three, early showed the drift toward socialism and looked to the central government for the rectification of what they held to be deep-seated social wrongs an epoch in the history of this movement was marked by the publication in eighteen eighty of a work entitled progress and poverty written by mr henry george henry george was a native of philadelphia he was born to poverty so that at the age of fourteen he was obliged to leave school in order to earn a living for himself shipping as a deckhand on a merchant vessel bound for australia he ultimately found his way to california eighteen fifty eight where he learned the printer's trade For years he suffered great privations, drifting from one employment to another and proving unsuccessful in them all. With some of his fellow printers, he established a small newspaper, and this also failed. Yet the venture influenced his subsequent career, since it led him to try writing for the press. His earliest productions show that he had already begun to study political and social questions and to urge his fellows to check the tendency of society to resolve itself into classes that have either too much or too little presently he became chief of staff on the san francisco times and thenceforward he devoted himself to a propaganda directed against the inequalities of society as it existed as early as eighteen sixty six he exposed the illegal practices of the western railways and in eighteen seventy seven after long reflection he began to write the book which ultimately made him famous the first edition was a small one the author himself setting a part of the type and for a while it attracted slight attention within a few years however it was taken up in england and widely reviewed as being a remarkable contribution to the literature of sociology with the exception of uncle tom's cabin no american book had ever been so widely read it was translated into all the languages of europe sheep editions were published in england and the united states and it is estimated that between eighteen eighty and nineteen hundred five no less than two million copies of it were sold and circulated note eleven page seven thirty four mr george's thesis was that the entire burden of taxation should be levied upon land irrespective of all improvements upon it thus confiscating the economic rent freeing industry from taxation and affording equal opportunity to all men by destroying the unfair advantage which the possession of land gives to monopoly Closely allied to his theory of the single tax, as it was called, was his doctrine that the laborer is really paid not out of capital, but out of value which he himself creates. In 1886, Henry George was a candidate for the mayoralty of New York City, receiving 68,000 votes. He failed of election. Yet the ballots cast for him exceeded the number of those cast for Mr. Roosevelt, who was his Republican competitor. Note 12, page 735 this display of popular strength gave an enormous impulse to state socialism of great importance also was the publication in eighteen eighty eight of a widely read socialistic novel by edward bellamy entitled looking backward this book attracted the attention of many who had never before given any thought to social problems bellamy clubs as they were called became fashionable the study of sociology spread and men and women belonging to the highly educated classes now joined hands with the representatives of labor as was written at the time bellamy's book brought socialism up from the workshops and the beer gardens into the libraries and the drawing-rooms a third writer whose influence cannot be ignored was mr henry demarest lloyd a lecturer on political economy who later became a practicing lawyer after a long investigation carried on with scientific thoroughness, he published his memorable volume, Wealth Against Commonwealth. Note 13, page 735. In it, he exposed, with a mass of documentary evidence, the methods of the Standard Oil Company and, incidentally, those of other trusts, the drift of his conclusions being in favor of the public ownership or control of natural monopolies such as water, coal, oil, and natural gas from this time the doctrine of the municipal ownership of public utilities rapidly won favor with the people it seemed to embody a practical means of restraining some at least of the aggressions of capital it involved no rash experiment since it had been already tried with great success in several of the cities of great britain and the continent and it presented no formidable difficulties in the way of its realization the coal strike of nineteen hundred two had brought out very glaringly the dangers of the private ownership of one of the necessities of life and in the autumn of that year the platform of the democratic state convention in new york advocated the acquisition of the coal fields by the national government the argument in favor of municipal and national ownership was extremely plausible the government already owned and operated with efficiency the post office why not also the railways the telegraphs the telephones and the express companies some american cities already supplied their citizens with water why should they not also supply them with gas why should they not manage the local means of transportation the ferries the street railways and the elevated roads it was answered that private companies could do this with greater economy than could either state or city But the reply was instantly made that such economies as private control effected went into the pockets of the individuals and in no wise benefited the public. Moreover, bitter experience had taught the American people that for the abuses of private ownership there was practically no penalty, while a like abuse of public ownership could be punished at the polls. Overcrowded, unventilated, and ill-heated cars, excessive fares and general discomfort usually went with private ownership and against these things complaints were unavailing while the law afforded no redress a legislative investigation in nineteen hundred five showed that the gas companies in the city of new york made enormous profits through a regulation of the flow of gas whereby at will they could manipulate the meters and increase the consumers bills to whatever sum they wished moreover private ownership selfishly refused to employ inventions and improvements because at the outset these would entail an additional expense for their installation note fourteen page seven thirty six a remarkable invention in long-distance telephoning was purchased by a corporation not for the purpose of putting it into use but in order to suppress it for twenty years the new york central and hudson river railway refused to employ electricity as a motor power in the long tunnel leading out of new york city although the use of steam had twice caused shocking accidents in which many lives were lost and in which men and women were frightfully scalded and maimed for life Governmental ownership, it was argued, could not possibly be worse than this. It must almost inevitably be more conducive to the public welfare. Note 15, page 737. It is not surprising, then, that the question of governmental regulation of railway rates and the municipal ownership of public utilities became a very vital one in the minds of the American people in 1905 it marked an end of the old individualism and a triumph of what was still called socialism but what in mr bellamy's phrase was more truly to be described as nationalism for many decades americans had held that corporations were possessed of the same natural rights as persons that belief was now shattered and it was clearly seen that corporations had no natural rights whatever but only such privileges as the people might choose to grant them that they were the creatures of the state and that their activities might be restricted or even if necessary destroyed when they should cease to serve the public interests by the end of nineteen hundred five more than half the cities and towns of the united states had acquired the ownership of their waterworks many were successfully operating their own gas plants chicago had elected a mayor who was pledged to secure to that city the ownership of its street railway system in new york mr w r hurst the candidate of the party of municipal ownership polled two hundred twenty five thousand votes failing of election by the narrowest of margins more important than all president roosevelt was urging upon the congress the passage of a bill giving the united states government power to regulate the rates imposed by railways upon shippers and thus to prevent the unjust discriminations which had made possible the beef trust the sugar trust and the standard oil company both the great political parties had in fact without really knowing it become permeated with the fundamental principles of state socialism the republican party had been essentially socialistic from the outset since it had looked to the national government to destroy slavery even though slavery was protected by the constitution later when in control of the government that party had used the federal power through tariff legislation to foster special interests and to enrich particular classes of individuals later still it had given bounties to sugar growers and had proposed a subsidizing of the merchant marine the democratic party on the other hand which in the early nineteenth century was very jealous of federal authority desiring to limit it as much as possible had in eighteen ninety two under the leadership of mr bryan become frankly socialistic advocating federal action to help men pay their debts and to diffuse prosperity among the agricultural population the general recognition of these facts marked a new era in american political history henceforth most americans looked to the nation and not to the several states for the righting of all wrongs and for the encouragement of favorable conditions not only commercial and industrial but likewise social this meant a severing of old traditions the establishment of new theories of government and in consequence the transformation of the american republic centralization of power however took on a more definite form than any vague enlargement of federal authority in the various departments of the government it tended specifically to make the president a supreme arbiter with prerogatives transcending those of the legislative and judicial branches just as congress was a more efficient conspicuous and responsible body than the legislatures of the separate states so the president was a more efficient conspicuous and responsible agent than congress americans were eager for results and results could apparently be achieved with less delay if their accomplishment were entrusted to an individual as in finance so in politics the one-man power was acclaimed there lurked somewhere perhaps in the national consciousness a love of the monarchical principle provided only that it were blended with a democratic element the tory democracy of england in the early eighties found its analogue in the imperialistic republicanism of the united states in the late nineties the whole history of the nation had been indeed a history of the gradual strengthening of the presidential power jefferson's unauthorized purchase of the louisiana territory jackson's struggle with congress over the bank polk's practical declaration of war against mexico in assuming that a state of war existed lincoln's use of the war power his trials by military commission and his edict of emancipation johnson's refusal to enforce the reconstruction acts grant's military government in the southern states and cleveland's rejection of the demand which congress made upon him to surrender the documents relating to suspensions from office were all indicative of the tendency that has here been mentioned it is by a process of easy transition therefore that one finds president mckinley invested with absolute discretion in expending the money voted by congress to prepare for war with spain and after that war there was little protest when the same president ruled without any legislative check upon his authority the conquered philippines and cuba and puerto rico End of chapter sixteen part one